tonight on the show we got legendary Miami radio personality Kid uh, Kim Kid Curry. Stay tuned. Welcome to Talking Junk. I'm your host, Jason Melendez. Live now every week on Fridays. Talking Junk. A multitude of professionals in different aspects, different walks of life. You have to come on and talk junk like a normal person. Welcome to Talking Junk, the podcast that comes to you live every Friday night on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter. And also... I've been saying it for weeks. The website, www.talkingjunknetwork.com. You can find all content from both shows there. So be sure to click on that. You can also find the link to where guests, which brings me to our guest tonight, the legendary Miami radio personality, Kid Curry. How you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing fine, Jason. Thank you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing good. pretty good. Good. Long day work. I'm I'm excited to uh, get into this conversation. So, uh, what part of the of the world are you in? Oddly enough, right now I am in Florida. I am in uh, Sanford, Florida. At oh, the moment. Okay. I see. Okay, I'm in Loveland, Colorado. Um, Big change of scenery. Yeah, it's a nice little area up here. It's uh, in the northern part of the state, about an hour north of Denver, and. Okay. Uh, Got lots of snow outside and more coming. So, all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to move back, moving back up north myself, hopefully yeah. soon. You know, when I was in Miami, I was in Miami for 25 years. I used to tell people there's no way I would ever go back to anything cold. <laughs> I just couldn't stand it. But after I got diagnosed with MS, you know, there's a there's a balance. You have to decide what you can live in. If you can live in the heat, or you can live in the cold. And it's easier for me to live in the cold. Than right. it is to live in the heat, so uh, I had to move back home. Damn it! But whatever. Well, I saw in one of your last broadcasts, I saw that you were having cocktails. I don't see me out there tonight, but I'm going to have one. I'm oh. waiting all day to have a cocktail. So. Okay, okay. Um, can can I get the whiskey, please? <laughs> can I get the whiskey, please? I just picked up some new stuff today. Uh, I seen some guy on TikTok drinking it. It's called Screwball. It's a uh, uh, peanut butter whiskey really so i bought some frangelico i thought maybe it would go perfect with it so we'll, we'll, i was gonna wait for tomorrow but we'll try that tonight with you there you go i'm with you so radio guy how'd you get into radio you no know, I, I believe um, it, it was crazy i you know i was a, a I trumpet player in high school a trumpet player in high school uh in the high school band the only a's I ever got there you go screwball there you go okay the only A's I ever got in school were in music. And um, uh, so I was a pretty bad high school student. But my dad worked at the only radio station in my hometown. And when I say the only one, that's the truth. There was only one. And my dad worked at that radio station, had a bunch of his friends in there. They were all from local. They were all local guys from right there in town. And they all worked on the radio station there with my dad. And nobody wanted to do the Sunday morning God show, which is when they what they did was they recorded all the church services from the week before and they play them on Sunday morning and uh, nobody wanted that job. So my dad hooked me up with that job and that's kind of how I got started in radio. Um, hey, you got to start somewhere. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. It was, you know, 
I went to college for a couple of years, uh, studied whatever I could to learn as much as I could, because once you get, it's show business, man. It's like girls paid attention. And uh, there you go, Kahlua. Um, so the girls paid attention. I kind of got into radio because of the chicks. So uh, I went to college for a couple of years and I dropped out to go get my first full-time job in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then I uh, spent about six months there. And there you go. What's that? Okay, there you go. Got it. There you go. About six months after I got to Knoxville, I ended up in Miami. And that's when I was like 22 years old and, uh, you know, living in a little small town in Colorado. Being in Miami was like swimming pools and movie stars. I bet. It really was. And, uh, and you got to remember, 1976 in Miami absolutely was Miami Vice. I mean. Oh, I could uh, just imagine. Well, I can't I think even... to myself I was born in the wrong era. Well, I got to live. I get, you know, I knew a guy who uh, had a Pantera who would drive from Key West with good. his car loaded down and drive faster than any cop car. And, uh, you know, but just, just, it was just early days of, of my Miami life. And it was, it was quite the thing. But, you know, I got there when I was a young kid. And then, you know, 33 years later, I was the oldest guy in town. And I had, uh, bounced around uh when I, after i got to miami i worked a couple stations there uh the two guys i worked for in miami i didn't know when i got down there like i said i got into radio because of the chicks but the two guys i ended up working <laughs> for down there were uh were legends and were trendsetters and i didn't even i hadn't even heard either of their names now i had listened to their radio station before because when you're in college and remember you're talking 1973 74 75 um there really was not even top 40 music on the FM dial back then because the FM dial in the early 70s it was the hippies. And they were like, hey, and before that we heard, and then before that we heard, <laughs> and then before that we heard. So there really wasn't uh, top 40 radio on the FM dial. Uh, so sometime in the early 70s, that transition from AM top 40 began on to the FM dial. And one of the legendary FM radio uh top 40 battles was in Miami. So when I was in college, we used to listen to tapes of these two stations, 96X and Y100. And, you know, that was when we were sitting back smoking dope, playing air checks and just going nuts thinking these people are innovative because these guys in Miami were giving away more money than we had ever heard of. They were talking to the people. They were having beach parties because they were in Miami. So it was like a real show. And so for guys in Colorado going to college, uh, young radio students, we thought that was very cool. So it, when it, I actually it got was to, very cool. It oh, was. Yeah, it man. was the trend at the time. Everybody wanted to be in Miami, especially for spring break. Oh, yeah. Well, those are other stories. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, we don't so, want to get you in trouble with the missus. Well, that's all right. She's heard them all. You know, <laughs> you remember, she was. a. Well, you know, uh, we'll get into that later, too. That's a whole nother story. So hey, we when got, I got time down there, all of them. Oh, well, we got time. Good. Um, so these two guys were very, very innovative. And by the time uh, I was at my first station down there, 96X, uh, eight months after I was there, the guy who hired me got thrown out because of a legendary radio contest. It was called Find Greg Austin in the Bermuda Triangle. Now, you can actually Google that. It's a court case. Uh, and Jerry Clifton was unfortunately the benefactor of the court case and was the one who took all the blame for it. 
But uh, so he gets fired and everything. And and but instead of me leaving Miami, the guy across the street at Y100. Now, I'm talking about an FM top 40 battle, one of the first in the nation. So 96X was the secondary top 40 station. The primary station, the one that was the best and probably one of the finest in the country at the time was called Y100. And uh, apparently I had impressed them enough over at 96X that when word got out that I was going to leave town, they quick hired me up. So I went over across the street to work at Y100. But the connection I had with these two people uh, really jolted me through my entire career. Uh, both of them, you could Google either name right now, Jerry Clifton, Bill Tanner. Uh, these are legendary programmers in the radio business. And well, like Bill, Bill has passed away. Jerry's still alive. But Bill there's, is a passing friend of, there's a friend of mine that um, he, <clears throat> he himself hosts a little uh, show on Instagram, and he uh, interviews legendary hip-hop artists. Yeah. And I, I, I tell him all the time, when you are in the presence of legends, when you sit at that table often, you yourself become a legend in your own right. And that's exactly what happened to you when you walked across into your destiny oh yeah yeah it was um it was it was college education well, actually it was a university education i was going to college a small college in colorado but these two guys working for them it was like going it was a university education so uh and these guys really jolted me through my entire career it was a good connection and um they from from miami i took off to san antonio because jerry clifton hired me to be a program director in san antonio I was there for about a year and then Bill Tanner uh, went up to Washington DC and got hired for one of the first million dollar programming contracts in the business at the time. And so he went up to Washington DC to try to bring the Miami style of radio into Washington DC and he brought me in uh, to do nights and it didn't go over very well. Uh, but there were some really exciting experiences there. Uh, you know, I talk about my radio stuff but underlying all these stories are the exacerbations of multiple sclerosis that I'm having that I don't know what it is. Uh, when I was in San Antonio, my whole right arm just curled up one time. I didn't have a clue what was happening. I thought, actually I did, I thought I'd been bitten by fire ants because wow. I had taken, I'd gone over to my neighbor's house to get his newspaper one day because he was on vacation. A bunch of fire ants rolled up my arm and I thought it was the fire ants that had caused my arm to do that. But it was a multiple sclerosis exacerbation. I didn't know what it was. When I was in Washington, D.C., um, you know, my radio show, I had, my radio name was Kid Curry because I was always the guy on the nighttime uh, that appealed to the little kids because I had a teen voice. And, you know, even today, I've got a very young sounding voice. You know, it's not my fault. Almost like Casey Kasem. Yeah, this is Casey Kasem. Yeah, so, so I, I was always the nighttime guy. And one of the features I did at night before my show was over was called Bed Check. And I would have the kids call in and I'd let them say whatever they wanted to say about a teacher. They could rip on their school, tell a joke about their mom, <laughs> their dad. And I would just put these on and I'd fire back a smart ass comment. But now this was a real famous feature in, in Miami because I got there when I was very young and, and was the primary nighttime DJ in Miami. When I was in San Antonio, I didn't do that feature. But then when I got up to, to Washington DC, I cranked it back up again, but in DC, remember where we are. Uh, it, it, it quickly went from being a teenage focus to a, an adult political focus. 
Right. And so suddenly I started having all these, these politician jokes and political comments. And uh, one night I got a call from a guy. I was going through my calls, bed check, bed check. Let the people say something. I say bed check. And the guy says, hey, it's me, Frank DeFramer. I'm over here at the White House. And the president was just in my office listening to the bed check. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I went on to the next call. Um, but three or four nights go by. And this, this guy calls back. And I'm finally going, wait a minute. The next time he calls, I'm going to put him off, take him off of the live line. And I'm going to talk to him, find out who this guy really is, because he kept saying, well, the president was just in here. And this is Frank DeFramer at the White House. And I, so I picked up the phone one time. It's OK. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You keep saying this. I'm assuming you're telling this is a joke for you. He said, no, no, no. Uh, surprisingly enough, someone has to take care of the frames at the White House. All the portraits need to be maintained. And, and, and they, I'm the guy. They call me Frank DeFramer. And when I call you on the bed check and I say the President Reagan was just in here listening to the bed check, I'm serious. And I was like, whoa, I couldn't believe it. So that was just an, an, an acquaintance I made on my show. So a few years go by and I'm, now I've gone up. Uh, so in Washington, D.C., Bill Tanner, who hired me there. Uh, did our, you, our, did you our, ever, circling back real quick, did you ever yes. get to confirm that uh, Reagan was indeed listening to you? Oh, well, yeah. Because let me finish the story here. I'll go on. Um, so I'm in Washington, D.C. working for Bill Tanner. He decides, well, no, the market decides that the Miami style of Top 40 radio is not necessarily what they want to hear in Washington, D.C. So our ratings fail miserably. We, Even though we tried to give away a million dollars, nobody listened to us. Uh, it wasn't big enough ratings. So Tanner quick goes back to Miami. Now, I didn't want to follow this guy around the country all the time. So because right. I was in the Northeast, I wanted to stay in the Northeast for a while. So I got a job at B104 in Baltimore. Um, so I'm in Baltimore at B104 for a while, having a great time, enjoying myself a lot. Uh, I got this girlfriend I'm hanging out with. Her grandma comes to visit from Texas. And one night at dinner, of course, I, well, you know, I've got this friend at the White House. His name is Frank DeFramer. And she says, well, if you've got a friend at the White House, then let's go take a tour. <laughs> I was like, oh, calling you out. Here we go. <laughs> Had to take a drink for that one, huh? Yeah, man, it was a tough one. So I, I, so now I'm calling the White House. Now I, this, this, this connection on the telephone was just a connection. I, I, he told me his story. I didn't know if it was true or not. So I called right. the White House. Hi, I need to speak to Frank DeFramer. Expecting to hear this click, <laughs> but I hear this. Oh, Frank. Yeah, hang on. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I picks up the phone. I'm like, Frank, Kid Curry. And so we had this discussion again. I'm like, uh, listen, man, I, I told my girl's grandma that I knew you and she wants to come over for a tour. And he's like, well, listen, man, you come over whenever you're ready. Let me know what day. I'll tell the guys that you're coming. I'll let everybody know you're coming. Just tell them you're coming to see Frank DeFramer and they'll bring you on into the White House. You can come into my office and everything and I'll give you guys a tour. Wow. So now this is this is just after the Reagan assassination attempt. Oh my God! They, they had not changed the uh, the security around the White House yet. So I'm in my little Toyota Corolla with Grandma on the back and the girl next to me <laughs> driving around the White House, and I've got to go. He said, "Just come on in." So I'm looking at streets that go into the White House, and I saw one that looked like that's the one I should take because it looks like it goes right up to the side. So I drive my little Corolla and I start going up to the side and I'm now 
the adrenaline had begun to rush. Oh, I mean, yeah. You like, don't know what's going to happen. I'm, Secret so, service is everywhere. And know that multiple sclerosis is directly affected to stress. So I'm driving down this road to get up to the side of the White House, and it looks like this is where I'm supposed to go. But suddenly these guys start coming at me, and they're oh. starting to pull their guns at me. And I'm like, oh, my God, now the adrenaline's really running. Now I immediately lose vision in my right eye. My right shoulder begins to contract, and my arm cr cramps up. I stop the car. I open the door, and I fall out. And I'm, these guys are going, freeze, freeze, freeze. I'm like, no, no, I'm Kid Curry. You're a Frank DeFramer. And they're like, kid. I mean, technically, you were already frozen. I was, oh, I was frozen. There's no doubt. I wasn't going <laughs> nowhere. I was just, I just crawled out of the car. And so I'm, but uh, I thought it was going to go down. But I, when I said my name and I was there, Frank, they, oh, yeah, Frank said you're coming. Come on in. We'll get you. Hey, can we get you a wheelchair? I'm like, no, get a wheelchair for grandma. Leave me alone. Okay. So it took me about 10 minutes for this thing to just calm down in my body. That was an exacerbation. I did not know I had multiple sclerosis at that time, but these little things kept happening to me. So I'm, I'm now I've gone from Washington, D.C., I'm in Baltimore, and then I get called back to Miami. The guys decide that I, they needed me to come back to Miami, and I went back to work for Y100. But it, by that time, uh, Bill Tanner was gone from Y100. They had a new uh, management regime in there. They just thought that having me back in the building uh, was going to help them with the ratings because I had had such success the time before. Right. Uh, you, you came from prior success in Washington. And had already been in Miami and already killed the ratings there. So, you know, they just wanted me to come back and do it again. But, you know, top 40 music changes. Uh, styles change. And it had been about probably seven or eight years that I had been in Miami. And by that time, it had turned over to this girl who was on the radio at night on Power 96. So which what was, year is this now? We're talking about 1987, 1988. I was just uh, born. Well, hey, welcome to my nightmare. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I go back down there. They want me to to, to do my best, and I, I can't beat the girl that's on the competition. Ninety six X eventually changed their name to Power ninety six. So mm -hmm. I had come back to Miami on Y one hundred. Power ninety six had this girl on there named Bo Griffin, and she was just kicking my ass at night. I couldn't beat her, and I got fired from Y one hundred. Um, first time I'd been fired. No, probably the second. Who cares? So I'm sitting there for about 30 days. Was uh, it just, the first time you got fired because of a chick? Oh, uh, <laughs> come on, man. Hearing this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to ask the hard question. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, so, you know, I, I eventually, after 30 days of sitting on the beach in Miami, really not really needing to do anything. I, you know, I got severance and I was in a good way and I was going to actually wait for my six month no compete to fall apart and uh, then go back to work in Miami somewhere. But 30 days after I got out of Y100, uh, the, when the midday guy on, on Power 96 uh, dies. So wow. then... By this time, Bill Tanner had now gone over to Power 96. So he says, wait a minute, I, you've already, we've already worked together on Y100. I'm now over here at this station. Come to work for me over here. So I'm now in Miami. Uh, right again, back where it all started. Where it all started. On the original station, 96X, they just changed their name to Power 96. But then in 1992, of all goofy things, man, uh, my father had been in a head-on collision 
wow. with a tractor trailer in the 70s in his car and had done serious damage to his knees. And by 1992, uh, they, if you're not old enough, maybe you're old enough to remember, in the early 90s, they didn't know what the flesh-eating disease was. It was just breaking out. There, was, you, there were antibiotics that were turning against themselves, and they were, your flesh was just getting eaten up. The more antibiotics they tried, the, the more it didn't work. And my father got stuck in that. In 1992, they amputated both his legs. So at that point, I left Miami, I left now Power 96 to come back to my hometown here in Colorado, my little one radio station town. To take care of your dad? Take care of my dad. You know, he needed ramps put in the house and everything, uh, you know, and plus my mom and she needed some support. And my dad was going through this new life of not having any legs. And I got to learn what phantom pain was and things like oh, that, man. you know, so, but I was only here for a year uh, back home here in Colorado when um, he started saying, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, he was, you know, Get back to Miami. This is, you were a pretty big guy once you weren't supposed to, because he was a radio guy. He knew what kind of gig I was having. He knew what success I was having and could not believe I was home. So a year later, I started considering going back to my, going somewhere else, but then Miami called again. And so here I am now going back to Miami for the third time. When destiny calls, you got to answer. Well, a year after I get back to Miami, they make me the boss. Um, you know, I was the youngest kid there. And after all this time, I guess they finally realized, and they did. It took them a while to hire me. In fact, it took them six months when they dismissed the program director that brought me back in in 1995. When they dismissed him in 96, they made me the interim program director. Now, I had been the interim program director at other stations before. They always say that. And then they say, oh, we're considering you for the job, but I knew better. Then give it to somebody else. So they were bringing in the geniuses of the business, man. They were bringing in, I could say names, and you, now the radio guys would be going, really? Really? Well, they were bringing them all in because it's Miami. And by that time, Power yeah. 96 was a very well-established radio station, and people wanted to run that place. So six months into them making me the interim, I had – they weren't paying attention to what I was doing. So I started making some changes to the radio station. And suddenly the monthly ratings started going up. So six months into this thing, they hadn't found the real program director and they finally, Greg Reed, the GM said, well, I guess it's gonna have to be you. <laughs> well, sometimes you gotta change the culture, man. You gotta give a shock to the system to make well, everything work. That, you know, to me, I was, it was, it was easy for me, but you know what, here's, here's the truth. I was the teenage disc jockey in that market for many, many years. And no, none of the managers ever took the little kids seriously because right. the groupies always came knocking on the door for Kid Curry. The groupies were always <laughs> in the front office. Where's Kid Curry? They were always, I mean, I would be at appearances and be harassed. I'd have boyfriends try to beat me up because their girlfriends would listen to me on the radio and they thought that they were having an affair with me just because they left me on the radio. Now, I didn't ask these questions. So if you get in trouble, no, no, no. These are all cool. My wife, is, she understands this. <laughs> so they didn't want to take me seriously. But, you know, I mean, I, I kept telling them, I'm the guy. You better stop it. And right. if you look at the ratings, they're going up. And they just finally said, well, you must have something going on here. Because you know what I did? It's Miami. And there was had never been a concentrated effort for a top 40 Spanglish radio station. You know, I mean, you gotta appeal to the culture. Ricky Martin had Spanglish songs. Mark Anthony, 
I could play Wyclef, uh, Shakira. I could play all these things that were Spanglish-ish. And, uh, and no one had ever really concentrated on doing that. In fact, I actually went out to the Latin record companies, uh, would go to their conventions and tell them, if you want my, if you just give me a bilingual version, do a chorus in English, do a verse in English, do it both ways. Just give me some of that and I'll play it. If they're good enough, I'll play them. And right, so what it did is it ended up- The out there has always been a little Latin. There's oh, always been Latin it, culture. It's, uh, well, I married a couple of Cubans, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, it's, and I had to, uh, being a gringo from, from Colorado, a redneck from Colorado, eventually I ended up being pretty bilingual because you just have to in Miami. That's part of your deal. When I went down there in 76, it wasn't like that. Remember, there was a big cultural change after the Mariel boat left, the, uh, the, Mar the Mariel boat left, uh, lift. And when that happened, everybody started leaving Mariel and coming into Miami. It really caused a major cultural change. So it made sense to me to be bilingual and believe me. Oh, well, there was a specific incident where I brought a song into my GM. Actually, I brought a song into my, my music meeting that I had brought. I've been out to LA uh, for a weekend and I heard a song by Artie, the one man party. And the name of the song was, Asa, uh, yeah, it was a great song, but it's called Asa Nena Linda. Asa Nena Linda. And it was a real little two and a half minute short song. And I, I, I brought it into my music meeting and I told, I, I told my staff, I said, okay, listen, here's the direction I want to take the station. I want to find songs like this. And the GM, the guy who put me in that position, was sitting in the room, of course, wanting to know where his new program director was going to take the radio station. And I played this song. And when it was over, it was quiet in the room. And he said, you're going to play that song on my radio station? Uh oh. And I said, there's no reason why I shouldn't, Greg. This fits. And he walked out. So I said to my staff, Go find me as much as you can. Watch. And a year later, we had the highest ratings in the history of that radio station. Power 96 spent years as the most listened to radio station in the Southeast United States. Uh, they have cumulative audience numbers that you can look up in Arbitron from those days. And well, you'll see the, the, the cumulative audience in Miami that I had was bigger than Atlanta, bigger than St. Pete, bigger than... Uh, you know, all those other places, Tallahassee, Arcune was bigger than everybody else's because we fit, it fit. So for nine years, you know, the station did better than it had ever done. But into the eighth year of this nine year thing I was doing, I started having these MS exacerbations that were happening were happening more often. Uh, I started losing my gait. I couldn't walk straight. Uh, my vision in my right eye, once it dimmed, it never came back because it had always come back. Uh, my shoulder, I could barely even move my shoulders. And I was, my toes, my toes would cramp up in, into circles. And it got so bad uh, right around the time of the tsunami in 2004, 2005, right around that time, I was home visiting my mother here with my family, my wife and my kids. And, uh, we were watching the tsunami on TV and my mom kept saying to me, there's something wrong with you. You don't look right. And I kept telling her, mom, I run the biggest radio station in Miami. I'm watching a tsunami. We'd never even seen anything like this before on the TV screen. The ones closest you always know though. But you know, she was like, when you get back to Miami, go to the doctor. And when I got back to Miami, I went to the doctor and 
you know, it took a month to get into the doctor because it was a multiple sclerosis problem I was thinking of. You know, well, actually, they, they started testing a month after I got home. It took another month to six weeks after that before they finally culminated all the information to find out that you know, I was, in fact, I was at a corporate meeting over in Naples, Florida. Uh, and I was in my corporate office on a Friday afternoon with all the geniuses of the company in there. And my phone rings. It's my doctor. And uh, my doctor, I go to the, another room and, and I tell her, uh, I'm in a meeting, this got to go quick. And she says, well, you need to see me on Monday because I, I'm, I'm deciding that you've got multiple sclerosis. I'm diag diagnosing you with multiple sclerosis. Now, I didn't even know what that meant. So on the drive back to Miami, remember I'm in over in Naples. It's a three hour drive across Alligator Alley to get back to Miami on the other side of the coast. During that three hour time, I was on the phone with my wife who was doing the, night, um, the 2005 version of Google uh, and reading to me things about multiple sclerosis, and it, none of it sounded good. Right. I mean, and, that's the one thing they tell you never to do is to uh, Google what you got and mm -hmm. see what the internet has to say about your symptoms. I am a very bad victim of this. I tend to see uh, little hints of things inside myself when I uh, look on the pages and by then I'm dying. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's better to just stay off those things. You never, you never know what you got until you well, really go to the doctor and run those tests. My MS has made me kind of a hypochondriac. Every little thing that goes on with me, I'm like, uh oh, what was that? What was that? Yeah. So this COVID so, couldn't have been a good thing. Oh yeah. Well, it's still I'm I'm immunocompromised. I mean, I've already got all three shots and looking for the next the next one. I'm gonna go get another one here in about another week or so. My wife is gonna insist I get my fourth shot. So when the diagnosis is made, um, I go home that weekend. My wife and I had a real serious conversation. Uh, go back in the office on Monday. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little sticky, uh, but I don't hold anybody responsible. I understand the problem. Uh, I go back to the office and tell the GM, gee, man, uh, actually he says, hey, you left the office so quick the other day over in corporate. They wanted to know why you left. And I said, well, the reason is because my doctor uh, had said that I was, I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And he was like, what? And that was my GM. Okay. So a few hours go by and he comes into my office and he puts a song, he, he puts this CD up and waves it in my face and says, we got to be playing this song. And one of the things that, you know, kind of made me famous, or actually I learned from Bill Tanner and Jerry Clifton, is when you decide what your station is supposed to sound like, don't let anybody tell you what it's supposed to sound like. Right. So I had learned not to listen to general managers who sometimes, you know, want to push their, their things onto my station. And I just, I wouldn't do it. So Greg had this song, he wanted me to play it. And I said, no, it doesn't belong yet. Uh, I've got it in the research. I will pay attention to it. I will let you know when it's ready to go, but it's on my radar. He leaves my office and an hour later, I get on the intercom, good curry to the sales manager's office. I get down there and they tell me I need to go home for a week and reconsider playing this song. Now, I don't know. Do you remember what song it was? Oh, I do. I yeah. Uh, I 
was it Black Eyed Peas that had a song, I wonder, I wonder, take you home. Da, 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 da. Um, yes, it was, I, it, it I had the hook line of, I wonder, yeah, whatever that one was, whatever that had the hook line. And I think it was the Black Eyed Peas. I, I, I could be wrong. I'm sorry. My MS has ripped my memory out. So, um, but, you know, so, so did, did me telling him I had multiple sclerosis make him want to fire me and get rid of me? And maybe thought he could assert his uh, dominance just because you were in a, a uh, compromised state at the time with your emotions. Well, it's either one or the other. Um, I went home for the week. And when they're down is a lot of people's uh, philosophy. It's a fucked well, up philosophy, but some people have it. So I went home. Um, and now by this time, by the time that I'm running Power 96, my two major consultants are Bill Tanner, Jerry Clifton. So we've got this, we, this whole Miami consortium, we used to call it the Miami Mafia, is running the most famous radio station in Miami. We've got the two geniuses that created the real beginning of this Miami sound, and now it's being done by me. So we've got this triangle of power. And we really feel like we know what we're doing. So I went home and I called Bill and I said, Bill, uh, uh, Greg found out I've got MS. Then he sent me home for a week. And I think Bill was taken aback by that. He, he thought, I think he immediately went into the legal possibilities. Right. Uh, you, you can't do that to me. You can't do that to a guy like me. Um, but you know what? I didn't care because during that week, uh, I... Now, remember, stress matters with MS. Now, I've been told to go home. Uh, I've, I've been recently diagnosed within 48 hours of multiple sclerosis. It uh, sucks, though, because you're, a, a legend of your stature shouldn't have been treated that way. Well, probably. You should have been shown out with grace. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, a whole hour, probably, in tribute to you on the, on the, on the, <laughs> the show reoccurring every few hours, you know what I mean? The same way they do with the songs, it reoccurs every hour or so. You, you needed to have that promotion out there that showed that you were retiring and people could, nowadays we call it giving you your flowers. Right. They should, they should have did that for you with all the things that you've done for them in enhancing the sound for Miami in their behalf and really giving them the power. Well, I can tell you that during that week I was out. I, I came back after after being gone. And I thought I was going to go back and be fired. I thought, well, this guy has decided that he doesn't want a cripple around. <laughs> Sorry if I call myself a cripple. But I was I suddenly got disabled and I, I felt like, oh no, you know, geez, I got this disease and the guy's gonna fire me. What's going on here? You know? But when I went back in the office, he says, you know what? Um, I need to move you to a different part of the office. I, I don't want you to go anywhere. We need to take care of you. Uh, so I need you to move over to maybe consider being the, uh, the the general manager of the two stations. We had an AM and an FM. He wanted me to oversee the both. He was going to get a program director. There was already a program That's director for the AM. And I was just going to be the overseer of both both properties. But by that time, in that week that my wife and I sat back, that was Jason. That was when we decided that was it. Because we knew, already made up. Yeah, we decided that multiple sclerosis had to be the focus because it was coming down on me hard. So I so while he's trying to say, okay, let's move you to a different position, I'm saying, no, Greg, 
I'm leaving. I'm done. And he's like, no, 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 go home. Think about it. You know, you know you've got to think. I don't want you to go. I want you to stay under our protection. We can take care of you. And I was like, no, I'm done, Greg. I, I'm, I'm out of here. So I went ahead and resigned. And I was sitting in my office the day I told him I, need, I was going to go home. I was going to cleaning out my office. And of course, my one of my thoughts was, well, gee, how am I going to take care of my family? I knew I needed to take care of my physical self because it was falling apart. But of course, how am I going to take care of my family? And right, that's always the main focus of a man, no matter how uh, much you're hurting, no matter what your your ailment is, you always want to make sure you can provide for your family. My job was so crazy at times. The office manager, her name was Phyllis, and I love Phyllis Poulos. Phyllis would come into my office all the time and say, sign this. Uh, she used to smoke a lot. Sign this. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just sign stuff because she just didn't, you know, I, he's too busy. Just and she, sign this. So she, at one time over the nine years, she had put in front of me a piece of paper that I signed that was a lifetime uh, insurance policy. Um and I didn't know it. I had a long-term insurance policy that I didn't even know that I'd signed. So on that morning when I'm sitting back going, and people are coming to my office because the word is getting out that I've resigned. I'm going to go home. Uh, I've got to get back and figure out what I'm going to do. My body's failing. Uh, and one of the lady, one of the people that came to my office was Phyllis Poulos. And, and, she's, and I'm like, Phyllis, what am I going to do? And she's like, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, dude, I, you signed that paper. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? She says, well, you have a life, you have a long-term insurance policy and they will pay God you. Oh yeah. And they ended up paying me half what I was making at the time and was making well over a quarter million dollars at the time. So, you know, I mean, whoa, it was, uh, it was something that it was then suddenly that weight was lifted from me. And then my wife and I could make rational decisions because we didn't have to worry about income. Right. And so we decided that we needed to get out of Miami because the income was good, but it wasn't enough to sustain me in Miami. It's not it's it's not now either. So and no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So we figured that, you know, let's go back to Colorado. Let's go back to my hometown because I still had high school friends here. My mom is still here. Uh, so we just decided let's just go back to my hometown. Uh, my wife and I became fixers and flippers. Uh, we okay. spent a lot of my income on fixing and flipping. And during that time, uh, my wife didn't like the way that the real estate agents were treating her. Uh, so she decided to become a real estate agent. Uh, two, years, two years later was breaking per capita records in the state for real estate sales. One year wow. sold like 160 some houses. Just nuts. And this is all because I got sick. It was just crazy. And now she's she's now parlayed that. That was what, what, 2008 or nine? We're in the 20s now. She is now an international real estate business consultant. I mean, she she's got clients around the world. So this whole thing. Okay, so let's get back to me. Okay, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what you drinking there? This is a uh, limoncello martini. It, it was a double. I knew I'd be here for a while. So, <laughs> so, so then I, I, so then I leave the station. Two thousand five. Over the next eight years, I go from still being able to walk, to walking with a crutch, to walking with canes, 
and then being in a wheelchair within three years because I'm done. Wow. I can't walk. In fact, I even as I'm I'm in my wheelchair now. That's my wheelchair head thing. So I'm in my wheelchair now. Um, I also hey, you know you still look good though. Well, it's funny. That's if if you, all the MS patients out there who are listening to this and they will eventually because I'll promote it too are going to say that's what they all say. <laughs> we get that all the time. MS patients are fine until we stand up. <laughs> and then, poof, <laughs> bonk, sorry, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I went from having this, this kind of normal life to, you know, when you're Kid Curry and, and you're a famous DJ in towns across America, and then you're running the biggest radio station in Miami, you're the kind of guy that people gyrate toward. Uh, they want to be next to you. Right, you can make the following. Well, but then when you are a guy who on a crutch and then you're in a wheelchair, what you learn is people don't want to be next to you. So I went through and a that real mental sucks because nowadays it wouldn't be like that. I don't I don't believe. Well, in the little town in Colorado that I was in, you know, I can tell you that whatever I mean, I don't know, whatever town I'm in, I've I've traveled to other cities in my wheelchair. I've been to Disney World. People deal with you differently when you're in a wheelchair. They don't want to be in, they don't want to get, they don't want to be around you. They move away from you. Uh in the beginning of it, it used to really bother me, man, because you know, like I said, I was kid curry. People wanted to be next to me, then all of a sudden nobody wanted to be next to me. I mean, it was my friends would even I would even see you know, trepidation in my friends about taking me places. Uh, yeah, when I when, find out who your true friends are. Well, I, I I stepped out of a friend's car one time and hit the deck, and and he laid me that he left me on the ground there until he went to my house and had my son come out to pick me up. He, I guess, felt weird about picking me up, but you know, so people what, treat you differently. You know. Hold on, time out. He felt weird about picking you up, but didn't feel weird about leaving you on the ground and going <laughs> to your house and getting your son. My son is the one who came to pick me up. So that is amazing. Yeah. Well, I you know, I don't blame anybody. I don't blame anybody cuz you know what I did after, you know. So so now we're into we're going into the 8th year of my of my physical condition failing miserably. And my doctor all of a sudden says, "Listen, these medicine, these drugs you're on." And I was taking at that time I was taking a drug called Rebif. And I've been taking Rebif for about seven years and my condition was failing still. And the doctor said, well, when I first got diagnosed, there were only four or five MS medicines at the time. So when you fast forward eight years later, there are now 10 medicines on the market. And so my doctor said, eight years into my condition, let's change your medicine, man, because this stuff is not helping you. We need to see if we can change the medicine and get something to help you. And then he said this, he said, I believe, because this, my doctor is a, he's a scientist MS doctor. He, 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 he is, that's all he does. And he treats it like nobody else. He really gets it. And he said, I believe vitamin D, if you will change the drug and you start taking vitamin D, and I mean massive amounts, you're going to see a change in your condition. Well, I'm a radio DJ, okay? Uh, I used to make jokes about my mom calling my radio show, and she'd say, take your vitamin C while she's <laughs> sniffling, you know? And I'd be, come on, mom, vitamins don't do nothing. And so when my doctor's telling me to take vitamin D, I'm like, listen, I'll change the medicine, but the vitamins are nothing. And so for six months, he said, take them, and I said, no. And then my wife finally, after six months, said, take the damn vitamins. 
So I changed the medicine. I took the vitamins. And six months later, my condition stopped failing. I leveled off. Things that were happening to me consistently stopped happening. I'm right now, um, my, my bladder used to fail all the time. It's not failing anymore. Uh, now, I can tell you that my legs are still in constant seizure. I take a drug called baclofen, 80 milligrams a day. Uh, to try to get my legs to stop seizing, but it's adrenaline, it's stress it conduced, induced. So they're stressed right now. They're sticking straight out right now because we're, the adrenaline's running. I'm sorry, they say I have a face for radio. Yeah, that's okay, man. You're exciting me over here. <laughs> um, so my, so suddenly, you know, everything kind of just went into neutral. And it really, that was another mental change because I was going down so much in my mind, I was, you know, what's going to happen? I'm, I, I'm going to die. I'm my family. What am I going to do? And then suddenly it went like this and nothing, everything that was happening at the time is happening today, but it hasn't gotten worse. And so it's kind of freaky. The doctor says that, you know, what happens in multiple sclerosis patients get lesions in their brain. Now they say you only use what 3% of your brain, well, what happens sometimes is your brain lesion gets wired around. So some of the things that have been happening to my body, my brain has, has wired it differently. And I've gone past some of the problems that I had. The brain um, is an amazing thing. It, science. I'm a big believer in science. So then I had to start changing my mindset. You know, there I was being Kid Curry for 33 years. And then I was Kim Curry, the guy with multiple sclerosis and I'm going down pretty quickly to suddenly I'm Kim Curry and it's not so bad anymore. And maybe I should try to figure out, you know, after a couple of years of sitting around going, now what, you know, <laughs> now what do I do? It, it got into my head that I needed to tell my story. Now, the reason I needed to tell my story, that happened. Listen. Well, after after 10 years of this MS thing, remember, when I disappeared from the business in 2005, I really disappeared. Uh, there really wasn't any big goodbye stories. There wasn't any big, you know, because... Right, you just faded to black. I just was gone. And people wondered. It was on, you know, YouTube and Facebook. Where, whatever happened to Kid Curry? And uh, actually in the trade magazines, they were even, what happened to Kid Curry? Because I, I, I seen didn't... you in that Waldo book. <laughs> there he was. There he was. So it was really a mystery to some people. but And no one stayed in touch with me. It was really kind of crazy. It really bugged my wife. Very Sounds. few people reached out to find out if I was okay. And, uh, and that went that on. That is not okay. That is not okay. Well, All the people from uh, kids past, it is not okay. <laughs> it's not okay to just leave your friend out flat, especially in this time of need. Especially when you know what he's going through is stress-induced. You don't think that leaving him flat out induced more stress? It did. It, it really bothered me. It, you know, I can tell you that it bothered my wife more than me. And that's the truth. My my wife was the one who really. But that's was, what bothered you is that she was bothered yeah, by it. Yeah, yeah. But there was one guy. I'm a 420 baby. Hey. That's me, 420. That's uh, mine and my wife's anniversary. Oh, cool, cool. 420 kids. There you go. 
I've got a friend who was an April 1st baby. Uh, his name was Vince Pellegrino. So after, you know, during the, during my time in the business, every first I'd call him every 20, he'd call me on April of 24 one, we talked to each other. So as, as I was gone from the business every year, I still got that call from Vince Pellegrino. Now Vince owned an influential radio magazine in the industry. It was called I Sin. Think, I thought you were going to tell me Pellegrino. What's that? I thought you were going to tell me he owned Pellegrino. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Vince, uh, Vince owned the uh, Street Information Network. Uh, for those who were in the radio broadcasting business anytime from the late 80s to 2000-somethings, uh, Vince Pellegrino, uh, you know, you all the artists, you have a variety of artists who are backed by major record companies. Then you have the secondary record companies and the secondary artists. Vincent uh, really went out of his way to try to promote the secondary artists in the business. Uh, but a lot of those secondaries turned into big artists. I mean, I remember he was the first one to say Katy Perry. And suddenly okay. Katy Perry was the biggest thing on the planet. He was the one who you know, back when Wyclef Jean, the Fugees were starting, he was, hey, I was like, okay, okay. And then of course the Fugees, you know, so, um, so Vince was very influential in the business and I would get the phone. Ear. I'm sorry. He had that good ear. Oh yeah. Oh, he was magic. And in the business, like I said, if anybody's listening in the broadcasting business right now, they're going, Vince, we love Vince. Um, so I get a call uh, it would have been, oh, I can't even remember the, I could have been 13, uh, 2013, maybe 14. Vince calls me one afternoon. Uh, it was in September and he says, listen, man. Uh, so Vince's magazine was such a big deal. You know, he, I'm going to, I'm going to give you more example of how important this guy was. You right. know, that, uh, Katy Perry has big hit records. You know about all those that win the Grammys. You know those guys that win the awards. Well, they would not win those awards without the promoters who are getting their songs on the radio stations in America. Yeah, the people the real work. The real guys, the street workers. Well, Vince, every year, held a big award ceremony for the street, the promoters who did the biggest work, who got the, the biggest hits on the radio and, and did the most work. And every year, it was one of the biggest industry parties but it was only for radio programmers and music people. It uh, wasn't for anybody else. It wasn't a, a famous thing. It was only for us guys in the business. That it became the, the yearly sin party, the yearly sin awards became a huge deal. I had never gone, but I had learned that it was a big deal because you everybody would talk about it. In fact, I hadn't gone to the thing, but they had actually uh, made me program director of the year one time. Uh, okay. I, so I, I could have gone to get the award at that thing, but I, I was running my radio station. I didn't want to get dis distracted by a magazine. Okay. But he and I were friends, partners. He called me in September, I think 13, 2014 and says, listen, man, my, uh, my award ceremony is coming up in November. I want you to come here because I want to give you a lifetime achievement award. You okay. disappeared. Nobody knows what's, what happened to you. Uh, I want people miss you. They want to see you. And so I want to fly you and your family in for my award ceremony in New York this year. Uh, so can you come? And man, that hit me because all those things about not people not paying attention and I just disappeared and felt like nobody cared. Vince cared. And uh, it really got to me. So 
he flies me and my wife and my my fourth kid out there to New York. And his his award ceremony every year was at BB King's Blues Club. Uh, I mean, it, it's a very if you've ever been to New York and been to a blues club, BB King's well, I was, is a. I was born in New York. Well, BB King's is a big Bronx. blues club, and he was very connected to BB King, and so he would let him have his award ceremony there every year. So, you know, I. I, I get to the, we get to the awards ceremony and I hadn't seen Vincent at all for 10 years. Okay. Uh, but there came a point to where the big bouncers came from backstage. I said, okay, it's time for you to come in. They wanted me to be in, uh, but they wanted me to be off stage because they wanted to surprise everybody. I was there. So they bring me to the back and then I get to see Vince for the first time in 10 years. And there's a reunion there, man. I missed that guy. I got a hug. I was crying like crazy. The best hug ever. Vince is dressed in this big overcoat with a scarf on and a hat, and he's completely covered up. I could just barely see his face, but I thought, I didn't think anything about it. I thought, man, you know, I mean, it's Vince, Vince, I love you, man. He says, listen, I got to go start the show, so let the bouncers take you back here. You get set up, and then I'll call you up, okay? So he goes up and starts the show, and it's he's the kind of guy that when he put his, his awards ceremony had fresh acts. I mean, you know, Wyclef performed there. I mean, Katy Perry performed. These, this was not only an awards ceremony, but some of the acts that people were trying to promote would show up. So it was a big deal. Okay. And suddenly, you know, Vince, uh, he says, there's this guy that, you know, uh, he starts with a story of Wyclef, Sean. I, Wyclef and I are personal friends. And his dad and my, my dad died around the same time. And it really helped form a relationship between the two of us. And uh, I, I, I play hits, and I believe that songs like Why Clef's John belong in Miami. So there was a song that yeah, Clefty had, had out, the Fugees had out, and for some reason it wasn't showing up in the research. And again, I'm playing my radio game. If it's not going to show up in the research I want to see, I'm going to take it off. I took it off. Vince called and he went nuts. What are you doing taking off that? He's your friend. He's going to be pissed off. And I said, he knows that if I make the decision, it's the right thing because he believes me. Don't worry about it. But Vince went crazy enough to where I said, okay, okay, Vince, I'll put it back on. <laughs> so that, that was the story he told in front of everybody. He says, this guy, but this guy believes. This guy believes, and he believed enough to put this Cleffy record back on the radio. And here he is, his kid Curry. The place goes nuts. And there was a very famous person who took my wheelchair. I don't want to say his name. But I couldn't get up. They, they had a ramp set up, but it was set that my wheelchair got stuck kind of halfway. And suddenly this big huge person who if i said his name you go yep he just picked up my wheelchair and put me on stage and it was like yo what the hell was that and uh so i get up there and i see people i hadn't seen since i was got left the business 30 years of friendship really good it was awesome and then at the end of the night i get off the stage and people are coming to me and they're saying have you heard about vince have you heard about Vince? I'm telling you now everybody's coming by my, and I'm, and, and remember MS is stress related. My legs are sticking out. Sweat is pouring off me. Uh, I'm shaking and I'm having all, I've seen friends that I haven't seen in years and we're hugging and kissing, but they're all saying, have you heard about Vince? Well, I, Vince sends a message to me. So I need to see you tomorrow morning at your hotel. Let's have breakfast. So he comes over to have breakfast with me and then proceeds to tell me that he didn't have much time left, that uh, he brought me out there because he felt it was 
something he wanted to do for a friend. And uh, so Vince was was very, very sick. And uh, his, uh, his thought was to wake me up. He says to me, man, you've sat back long enough. You need to come back and do something. You got to do something. And I kind of even had the idea that maybe I would take over his magazine. I thought, Vince, you know, do you need me to come and help you? Because his family was involved. Do you, does your family need some help? Can I come back and help them? And he says, I don't know. Whatever you do, you've got to get back to work. And I went home uh, pretty depressed, happy, but depressed, and realized after thinking about it that, you know, music changes. Uh, there's no way I could be of value to anybody in the music industry. Uh, no way could I be valued in the radio industry because radio had changed by then. Um, so all I could think to do was to tell my story, was to tell my story and to tell my story about my friend Vince who picked me up and said, man, you've got to do something. And the something he got me to do was to learn how to write and become a writer and tell my story. And that's where I started writing books. Uh, I went out and I hired a writing coach. Uh, there's a lady here in Northern Colorado. She founded the writing, Northern Colorado Writers Association. I hired her. Uh, six months, she didn't talk to me for six months. She said, if you want to learn how to write, here's some books you need to read. <laughs> well, because I'm a DJ, man. I can tell a great story. I don't know how to write a story. Right. Um, the two different things. But uh, she gave me these books to read. One book that really mattered was a book called Save the Save the Cat Strikes Back. Is that right? Save the Cat Strikes Back. I think that's the name of it. I'll probably uh, I don't know. Anyway, it was it it told it taught me that if you're gonna write a story, make sure you come up with the spine and then weave the whole story back to the spine. So I wanted to tell my story about my career. I want to tell my story about my diagnosis, how it changed my life and how my friend Vince picked me up and said, come and do something. And so now I'm a writer. And so I, I hired the lady. She's six months later, I finally get a meeting with her. Uh, we start working for six or seven months. Uh, I'm, I'm writing things and sending it back to her. She's critiquing things. Uh, and, and then it, it took a year to research all the things I wanted to write about. And yeah, then a year later, I thought, what's that? Yeah, because you want to be thorough. You want you want to be political. Oh yeah, right? I'm telling political. stories. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm talking about you know concerts that happened, <laughs> things that really happened. You know the, you know I'm in San Antonio, and and the first day I'm in San Antonio, uh, the 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 AM uh, the FM station. I, I went to work for the AM station, but the FM station was having a concert with the Beach Boys, and. Uh, so I'm on stage kind of in the background watching all my staff do their stuff because it was my first day. I was just sitting back watching them. And, and one of the guys walks up to the mic. The guy's name was Joe Nasty. Joe Nasty. Joe cool. Nasty. Joe walks up to the microphone in front of 50,000 people and he says, yo, show us your tits for Texas. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I mean, my first day with the staff, and it, this was what, 1982? I didn't know you could do that in front of people. But apparently they did in front of in Texas because everybody went nuts. And so, Everything you know. Everything was bigger in Texas. Yeah, man. It, it was, was uh, So, you know, I told all these crazy stories. That's what, they're, they're in my memoir. Come get me, mother. I'm through. All the funny radio stories and everything, that's where they are. Come get me, mother. I'm through. Uh, and you can find and, it right here on Audible. 
there you go. Thank you very much. But once I got finished writing there, I wanted to continue writing because I kind of like felt like I was enjoying the creative process. And then, you know, <laughs> I don't know, this story has been going through my mind since the early days when I first got on the radio in 1972. So Remember, I talked about- Oh yeah, and, and I didn't really even know it was a story until I got finished writing my memoir thinking I need to continue writing something. And I, and I, I went, I don't read, I have to hear audiobooks. So I went to the audiobook To Kill a Mockingbird. I never, you know, in high school, I probably said, sure, I read the book because it was a sign. No, I didn't. I went back and listened to the audiobook of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I had this, this story that was kind of in my mind, but listening to the way that Harper Lee directed this story, all of a sudden at the end of it, it kind of like flashed. I'm like, there's the story. I know what I want to write about. Okay, now we're going to go back to when I was 17 years old and my dad got me my job at the first radio station. Okay. Remember I said it was the only radio station in town. The only one. All his friends worked there. Uh, in 19, and, and my dad really liked the fact that these guys were from Canyon City. They all loved the town. Everybody knew who they were. Uh, it was a real community thing. The town was behind the radio station. In 1981, Reagan was, 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 became president. He began the, he wanted to deregulate everything. He, de, he remember he fired all the uh, air traffic controllers. Uh, he, re, he got rid of all the financial rules. He decided he was going to change the broadcasting laws, the rules that had been in effect since the early days of Shake things up since the 1940s. Uh, in 19, and because radio was as it was, uh, in the very beginning, the federal government had to decide how to stop these people who own radio stations from lying about, you know, selling snake oil, uh, uh, telling stories about people that weren't true, because it was the very beginning of radio. You just had to have money to buy the frequency, and you could broadcast basically whatever you want. S to stop that from happening, the federal government came up with the Fairness Doctrine. Now, what the Fairness Doctrine said was pretty simple. Contrasting, equal time for contrasting points of view. In other words, if somebody was on spewing lie about something, any radio, anybody listening to the radio at that time had the right to go to the radio station to demand equal time to debate the lies that were being spewed, equal time for contrasting points of view. Well, Mr. Reagan thought that that was antagonistic to the First Amendment. He says that people should have the right to say whatever they want regardless, so we need to get rid of the fairness doctrine, the rule that required equal time for contrasting points of view. Now, this was put together as an act, the 1987 Fairness in Broadcasting Act. It was passed by the Senate and the House. President Reagan vetoed that law in 1987, which opened the way for the Federal Communications Commission to rescind the Fairness Doctrine. That was the rule requiring equal time for contrasting points of view. One moment. Take your time. Now, Okay, so you have a president who says, 
that people should have the right to say whatever they want to say. So you throw out that rule, and you're, you're what happened? And then in 1996, the, this began happening actually earlier. But in 1996, the rules were dropped on ownership. It used to be you could only own seven radio stations, AM and FM. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, in 1996, you could own as many as you want. After 1987's decision by Reagan's FCC, you started seeing syndication. You could have one radio show syndicated on a bunch of different radio stations. Yeah, like the Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club, absolutely. Which is how iHeartRadio owns almost every radio station now. And we can get into that. They don't like me very much. I can tell you that the only iHeart station I ever went up against, I kicked their ass. So thank you very much. All right. Anyway, <clears throat> anyway I digress. So, if, so you take that rule out. So then you bring Rush Limbaugh in. You have Rush Limbaugh attacking and spewing things that cannot be proven, uh, throwing out conspiracy theories that can't be proven, and you've got no debate. And all you have is this one stream of lies being spewed over and over again. If the fairness doctrine were in effect, every time anybody lied, Anytime a conspiracy theory was thrown out on the on the AM or FM dial or on television, if the fairness doctrine is in effect, anybody can go and, and say, I want equal time to debate this, and you let the public decide. Mm. Now, you're not old enough to remember, but there may be some people here listening to us that may remember Saturday Night Live in the very beginning. Saturday Night Live actually had a, a whole feature. It was a whole bit, uh, point, counterpoint. And uh, there used, to, in fact, they, they took the bit off of 60 Minutes because there was an official point counterpoint on 60 Minutes. It would have this old curmudgeon and this uh, and a woman, and they would give a point and a counterpoint. They'd give both sides and let the people decide. But on Saturday Night Live, you'd have Dan Aykroyd saying what he had to say, and then Jane Curtin saying whatever she had to say, and Dan Aykroyd would say, Jane you ignorant slut. <laughs> People who are old like me are laughing. They get it because that was part of the deal. But you had point counterpoint. You, it was legal. It was required to have both sides of the story told so people could form their own decision. Well, when you take out one side of that conversation and you let people spew nothing but lies, that's the reason we have a lot of the division we have in America today. Because you have people out there on broadcast airwaves, specifically one specific network that lies, lies, lies. Now, the fairness doctrine has been revisited a variety of times since 1987. But remember, we have this uh, systemic white supremacy in America. No systemic old white guys running America. And the guys who, who, who love Reagan, uh, remember Reagan gave us the death of the middle class by giving the world corporate life. Uh, and, and he rescinded this fairness doctrine. And, and he is the guy who basically is responsible for the division we have in America today. That's what this book is all about. It's the death of fairness. It's the story about what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after President Reagan rescinded the fairness doctrine. His FCC rescinded that fairness doctrine again in 1987. Um, and as recently as the last couple of years, 
there has been talk about returning some sort of a fairness doctrine. The way it's set up now, uh, Jason, when, you know, Sean Hannity says something bad enough and, uh, you know, the advertisers start shutting him off and, and uh, he gets dismissed. That's the way it goes now. Yeah, you get canceled now. That's what happens. Yeah. The, the, the way you make this happen, the way you make all of these liars stop is you make the broadcast entity responsible for what's being said. Exactly. So if you're not going to give both sides, we're going to fine you. And if you're not going to give both sides, we will fine you dearly until you cannot do this anymore. So that's how you stop this. You make the broadcast entity responsible for the lies being spewed as opposed to the person spewing the lies. Now, they have this in Canada. That's why it works in Canada. They don't have the division. Well, there is obviously certain division everywhere in every country. But the division that they have in Canada is nothing compared to the division we have in America because they have a form of the fairness doctor of the of the fairness doctor they call it something that's else. why we're the land of the free yeah free yeah good good for you but you know what um so what i've done now i'm i'm a big believer that someday somebody's going to figure this out I, you know the reason i wrote this book i give it out for free um I, I got boxes of them and i give it out to the girls at the starbucks and the guys over at the juice place uh and the guys over the Freddy's, put the word out. I give it out, and and when these and at my dispensary, and when you when you go back and, and at your and, dispensary, at the dispensary down the street. Um, oh, okay, so, I thought you owned your own. No, 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 the dispensary down the street, and I tell them to read this because your government has done something to you that you're not aware of, and when they read this book, they all come back to me pissed off. Wait a minute, how can we let this happen? Well, we didn't let it happen. Ronald Reagan, the corporation lover, let it happen because what was happening back when the Fairness Doctrine was in effect, the cost of giving equal time was cutting into the bottom line of broadcast facilities. Because remember, if someone's broadcasting, spewing a lie for 15 minutes and someone comes and complains and you have to give them 15 minutes, that affects the bottom line. So he rescinded this. One of the reasons he rescinded it, not only because he thought it was antagonistic to the First Amendment, but it affected the bottom line of broadcast facilities. And, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, he's a lover of corporations and big business. So people that read this book, the young people that read this book can't believe it. And I give it out all the time. As a matter of fact, this book, you know what I did is I took this book. There's a company... Um, company called tail flick and i don't even think they're doing this now uh you could send them your book and they would they would go through it they would read it give an analysis uh tell you what you needed to do to make it right and so i sent this to them and they sent it back raging about how good the story was it just needed to be more in depth it needs better storylines you need more characters so they wanted you to fictionize it they wanted me to really get into it. They wanted me to make a real story out of it. So what I did, and I've done for the last two years, and matter of fact, it's going to be released here hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I got back into the story. 
and I made it a I made it a YA story, a young adult story, and I made it a story that I want to appeal to young women, because I I heard a comedian say the other day, you know, we could sure fix a lot of things in this country if we would just you know have like a generation of nothing but women. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, huh? Hmm. Okay. They do it in China. They can tell you. <laughs> no, no. We'll take this one. But, you know, I believe in women. I believe that women can fix a lot of the ills that we have in this country. So I've written this next book. It's called Bonnie's Law, The Return Bonnie's to Fairness. Uh, it's not out yet. It will be soon. But it's actually on. A, uh, these are self-published. Um, Bonnie's Law was such a good story. I went and uh, got a, a best-selling author. Uh, involved in this story, and he's going to help me promote it because he liked it that much. Great. Uh, this guy is a best-selling Amazon author. But what I've done is I've taken this story, and I've made it about this one girl. Her name is Molly, and Molly has eidetic memory, and they discovered it when she's two years old. And as Molly grows up, she becomes a very intelligent girl, but she's so loved by everyone and she's so easy to get along with she ends up teaching her little her kids and her friends in school the things that she's learning so she's growing this whole audience of friends from first grade she didn't go to kindergarten because she was smarter than everybody they started her in first grade and so she starts teaching her kids her friends all the things that she knows and in fourth grade she meets bonnie martinez who comes to her town from mexico and they become best friends and somewhere around ninth grade, no, let me go to somewhere around seventh grade, they end up going to a horse ranch and they, be, they end up loving horses. So these two little girls fall in love with a horse and they go to horse rescue. And then in ninth grade, the big Bob, big Bob of the radio station, big Bob comes to the radio station with uh, Tom and big Bob and Tom tell the ninth grade social studies class about President Reagan's decision to rescind the Fairness Doctrine. And these two little girls see the damage that could be done. And it really becomes something that, that they begin to fight for. And they end up in senior high in the senior year as the debate team, the champions of the state, debating whether or not Reagan should have rescinded the Fairness Doctrine. And fast forward all the way through, uh, Bonnie's going to, Bonnie ends up passing away and Molly decides that she's going to take this fairness doctrine eventually and bring it back and gets all the way to the Senate and then goes to run for president because she's going to bring back the fairness doctrine. Right. So that's my next book and it's coming out soon and I'm very excited about it. So, Well, you got me all excited about it. Thank we got to have you and your best-selling Amazon author back when uh, this book comes out. Cool. I'm sure he loved that. He's a very nice guy. I'll have more details on my website at krcurry.com. Which you will be able to find on the website after this show goes yes. off the air. Yes. I'll have all of uh, Kim's links all on the website. You can find it under live, under the side banner, guest links. So, you, what... After that book, what do you plan on doing after that? Well, here's the deal. Um, the way I set this book up was Molly 
who decides she's going to run for president. She decides she's going to run for president, but you don't know if she has yet. So she's, she's filed paperwork to go run for president. The next book, we'll talk about what happens then. But it's going to get real serious now because you know what I've decided? You know, this is a serious issue in America. The division we have in this country and the lies that are being spewed that, that divide people have to be stopped somehow. So I'm taking this next book very seriously. I, you know, in Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness, uh, Molly actually gives the answer again, like I told you a little while ago, on how you can stop the madness. So she reveals that in her book, in the book. She reveals that in Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness. But I believe that you could even go further in exciting young people that, yes, you could change this. All we have to do is get people involved. You know, once you get past the... Um, once you get past what we call P1s in radio, the P1s, the ones who really pay attention, when you get past the P1s, the P2s, the P3s are where there really is an audience. The P1s, the guys who really don't like the fairness doctrine are a minority and they're vocal. But when you get past the P1s and get to the P2s, the secondaries that aren't so rabid, you, I've talked to many Republicans about my vision of bringing the fairness doctrine back and talk to them about the death of fairness. And they agree, let's bring back truth. Why can't we debate this so we can decide truth on our own? So yeah, it, it offends people when I say that I wanna bring back the fairness doctrine, You're but people can see the truth. And the truth is you should be able to hear both sides to make your own decision. So, you know, it's antagonistic to both sides of the, the story. Did Mr. Ray. think about running for office anywhere? You know, uh, stress, no. Right? My job is to excite. I'm I'm looking to get somebody, some young woman, some little girl out there. And and believe me, this this guy is going to help me promote this. Uh, I've even got you know. I see a movie deal in your future. Yeah, I can tell you that everything that the tail flick people told me that would make it. If you'll do these things, you've got a great book here. I did it in Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness. I'm very excited. I can tell you that this, this best-selling author would not be paying attention to me if it wasn't a real story. So, you know, when, you, when this comes out and people read the story, they're going to get excited because it's a great tale. Uh, it'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. But it's going to make you realize that there's a problem here that we can all fix. All we have to do is realize we've got to get off our tails and change it because it can be changed. You know, and I, just one person. I always, I always, I preach to young people all the time. You're eating off the plate your grandparents and parents have, have given you. How does it taste? Right. You've got to get off that plate. You've got to put your own food on that plate. I believe the young people in this country can save them, save America. There's enough of them. They just don't know how to do it. And you can find... Honest, Kim, most of them don't care. They don't care. They don't care. But what you can do is you can motivate some because there are TikTok influencers. They do yes, believe in some of these people that are out there. And I'm looking for a TikTok influencer to read my book and wear my, my Bonnie's Law penuelo. Uh, in the book, Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness, they end up wearing these panuelos. They are headbands that say Bonnie's Law. 
So I've had a bunch made up. So whenever I send my books out, I'm gonna, they're going to have a Bonnie's La Penuelo. So you really can change things. You could get somebody on TikTok famous enough telling the right truth and influence people. Yes, you can. You really can. And so I'm looking for that. And, and you'll find you know, it. You'll find it. Have you gotten on TikTok yet? Have you made your own TikTok account? You know what, man? I, I need, I know, no. I am, I'm 66 years old and computer dumb. The only reason I'm talking to you today is because my 18 year old daughter was home to be able to figure out how come I couldn't get in. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if you can get, um, if you can get her to do a little one to three minute video, we'll put you on our TikTok. Huh. Well, trust in knowing that. Give us that, your message and we'll put it out there. Well, I appreciate that because That's I believe in this. I believe in this story. I, I And those who have read the snippets of the story uh, believe it too. So I'm, I'm really impressed. I think these guys have, are going to really do a good job for me. And I think a lot of people are going to hear about this. Plus, I'll be promoting it on my Facebook and on my Insta and on my, my, uh, my webpage. I'll be doing that. And I'm going to promote yeah, this. Right. This, is, this has been really good, Jason. You're good at this. I'll be promoting this too. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And no don't go nowhere after the after the broadcast uh, yes. uh, ends the live. I want to get all those links and I want to make sure I find uh, I give everybody a way to find you and your books. because we're, right, we're definitely going to get you back for uh, for the next one. Appreciate that. Uh, it's 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 been a pleasure. Uh, I I just I'm glad I, I can have a Miami legend on the show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like I said, uh, and you are a testament to it. When you place yourself in a room with a constant legend, you yourself become legendary. Well, and you, you know, the. Here's what I learned about being in a wheelchair. When it first bugged me that I was in a wheelchair and people didn't like me, what I realized was, I'm the guy that gets to control the narrative. Right. Because when I roll into a room, who do they look at? You. So I have completely changed. I mean, I went from from cowering to when I roll into a room now, I'm the guy you talk to because I'm the guy saying, hey, good morning. What's up? How are you? What's up? You know, I and I don't have a problem having people hold the door for me. Yo, tall person at the grocery store, grab that off the top shelf. I'm a very vocal guy. I've turned it around. If I'm going to be here, you're going to hear from me. So right. you found yourself again. There we're I am. Glad, we're glad me. to have you back. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it very much. No, the, the pleasure was all ours. And like I said, we hope to have you back on to promote the other book. I appreciate that. I would love to do it. Hey, you have my information. You can, you can always say it. <laughs> and I'm sorry it took me so long to get hooked up. Like I said, thank hey, God for It happens. It happens. <laughs> uh, the, the viewers aren't um, any stranger to me putting the time up a little more because it happens every week. It usually happens on the Saturday, the Saturday night show. We're a little less organized there. And we have a little more drinks on that show as well. <laughs> so that's why we're a little uh, disorganized on that show. But it gets the job done. And like I said, um, whoever is listening to this live or who follows us in the archives, you can catch all of um, Kim's links on the website. I'll put them on the website. Um, yeah, go get his books. Make sure you listen to uh, what he has to say because it's very important for you to get your voice back. So just remember mm -hmm. that. And that's what we're all about, the voices. All the voices. That's right. 
So you tune in every week. Every week, damn it. Both shows. Jason, this is fun, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been a lot you. of fun. Thank you. We yes, got it. Like I said, we have to have you back on. We have right, to do man. it. And like Not I said, fun. never we, we never should listen to Reagan, but sometimes Reagan should listen to himself. Because government's first duty is to protect the people and not to run their lives.